God is doing a significant and a special work in this house. I've never seen anything like it. I know there's a lot of places you could be this morning, but we want to thank you for joining us here uh, at uh, Pursuit. We just, we just, we're just going to dare ourselves to believe that the Holy Spirit is not intimidated by the Northwest. And if the Holy Spirit is not intimidated by the Northwest, then neither are we. God's going to do something and is doing something here in this community that's so special, it's so real. And uh, you and I have the high privilege to be a part of what God is doing here in this hour. As I was praying and preparing for the sermon this week, here's what I felt like the Lord spoke to me in my spirit. He said this, in the life of a believer, hear me, in the life of a believer, the enemy can only steal what we give him permission to take. In the life of the believer, the enemy can only steal what we give him permission to take. You need to know this morning that the enemy is already a defeated foe. The enemy is already a disempowered demonic entity. 2,000 years ago, when Christ hung on the cross, he didn't say there's more work to do. He said, it is finished, which means this. The handwriting of requirements that was against your life has been wiped out. You've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Scripture says this, that although the enemy would bruise his heel, his foot would crush the enemy's head. And not only did Jesus wipe out the requirements against your life, but the Bible says in doing so, he made a public spectacle of the enemy. The Apostle John says it this way, For this reason the Son of God was made manifest to dismantle the works of darkness. Christ has not come to negotiate with the enemy. He's not come to strike a plea deal with the enemy. He's not come to do some sort of foreign policy and hand over all of our Black Hawk helicopters. I'm just joking. Sorry, that was... No, no, don't turn these in after you're done. Don't, you know, just... I know, you're all upset now. I'm just joking. Listen, that's just a joke, but... But in real life, the enemy is a defeated foe. He has no power, no authority over your life. And the only generational curses that have power are the ones that you confess in belief. So we're going to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. And in doing so, declare there is no king but Jesus. There is no authority like his authority. And what he says is the final word on all matters pertaining to life, death, and eternal life thereafter. So why is there warfare on this side of heaven? Because we got to constantly remind the enemy and remind ourselves that he actually has a lot less power than we think he has. And you'll reach eternity one day and be absolutely embarrassed of the puny size of the enemy. And some of us have over-empowered the enemy in our own thoughts by making him a bigger deal than he actually is. Under every rock in which we stub our toe is the demonic entity. And if the Starbucks line is long, it's warfare in the spirit. And if I don't get my parking spot at Costco, call the saints. We need to pray. And it's just... And listen, I believe God cares about little stuff and big stuff, but here's the reality. The devil isn't omnipresent. God is. The devil isn't all-seeing. God is. The devil doesn't have sovereign authority. God is. And God holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave, which means this. Even where Satan is, he's not even the owner of where he's at. 
There's coming a day where he'll be bound for a thousand years. And then after that, thrown into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. We serve a risen Jesus and we have a defeated enemy. So the next time you're facing warfare, I just want you to remind yourself. No, the enemy has already been defeated. It's past tense. And I'm going to allow my confession of faith to catch up with the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to confess and believe that what the enemy says to be true is not true because he's the father of lies. And he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ has come to bring life and life more abundantly. So we're going to stand on the side of victory. We're going to stand on the side of life. I'm not going to live life with a big devil and a little Jesus because that's not how this works. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. The enemy is a crushed, defeated, disempowered foe. And the reason why it seems like at times the enemy has so much authority in the realm of earth is because principalities and powers work through the principle of agreement. We got a lot of people in our world today agreeing with what the enemy says and not agreeing with what God says. But he's disempowered and defeated, and I can't afford to live with a saved heart but an unsaved confession. Because my confession dictates my life. It dictates my future. So we're just going to confess the good confession of faith this morning. Listen, don't overempower the enemy through bad theology and false agreements. You've got a peace the world can't take. You've got a joy that circumstances can't take. You've got a hope that the enemy can't have. You've got a spirit that Satan can't quench. Now watch, I'm going to be in 1 Kings 19 this morning. Some of you may be familiar with the story, others of you aren't. I'll give you a little context today. But lately I've been in the major prophets, the minor prophets, and the historical books in the Old Testament. Because I actually believe all scripture is God-breathed. All of it, not just the ones you like. But all scripture is God breathed. Not just the ones that always agree with your political opinion, but all scripture is God breathed. The verses you like and the verses you don't like, all scripture is God breathed. And so I think there's principles hidden all over this book that actually speak to the current moment we're in. And sometimes people act like they've been educated out of their need for scripture. Like, well, it's an old book. No, it's a living word. It's a living word. And not only do you need to be in the Word, but the Word needs to be in you. Because when the Word gets in you, it is living, breathing, active, and it accomplishes everything it's been sent forth to do. And what I've found is a lot of Christians live below the level of their authority and their power because they just simply don't know what's been written. And if you want to hear the audible voice of God, you can. Just read your Bible out loud. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. I'm feeling a certain type of way this morning, so just forgive me. 1 Kings 19, now 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now let me stop there for a moment. Ahab and Jezebel is this perfect picture of a stupid king who marries a wicked woman. Can I tell you in America, we have two political parties. One is stupid, the other is evil. And when they get together, they do really stupid and really evil things, and they call it bipartisanship. When stupid and evil team up, watch out. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Let me give you some background. Elijah has just finished the most impressive victory of his life. The prophets of Baal have been killed with the sword. And after three and a half years, rain is coming back to the land. The prophets identified in verse 1 
are the prophets of Baal. Watch. Baal was a demonic entity that the people of Israel worshipped in rebellion against God. Watch. Baal was the god of fertility and often would require the sacrifice of children. Make no mistake, Baal is still worshipped today. We just call it choice and perform it in a clinic. Our culture still sacrifices to the God of fertility, and the result is a curse that comes on the land. And here's what I found. Every time God's about to raise up a reformer, every time God's about to release an awakening, every time God's about to free a nation, every time God's about to send revival, what we see is a counterfeit move in demonic realms that tries to snuff out the next generation. Why do you think when Moses the deliverer was born, an edict went out from Pharaoh to kill the babies? Why do you think when Jesus was sent in the fullness of time, an edict went out from the Roman government to kill all of the baby males? Why do you think we suffer such a genocide in our generation today? Because the enemy knows that what is coming next for this nation and for this region is deliverance, awakening, revival, and reformation, and he gonna try to snuff it out before it even starts. But for everyone the enemy takes, God raises up 10. And one person with God is still a majority. Watch, we're in similar season today. Now watch, there was righteous prophets and there are unrighteous prophets. But the voices you listen to determine the type of life you're going to live. And it's imperative that you eliminate every other inferior voice that seeks to diminish your passion, poison your perspective, or corrupt your faith. And let me tell you this this morning. Scripture is a sword in the life of a believer to combat every inferior voice in your life. That's why when Jesus was in the wilderness, when he was tempted by the enemy three different times, he came back with the same three-word statement every time. It is written. Here's what I found. When you get into the midst of trials and tribulations, it is what you have buried in your heart that comes out. That's why scripture says, hide the word in your heart that you may not sin against him. Jesus didn't pull out an app. He didn't pull out the scroll. He didn't get the new King James. No, he just responded. It is written. Why? Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates. It cuts. It removes. And every time the enemy came in like a flood, God raised up a standard. And what it looked like was it is written. And when you don't know what's written, you're robbing yourself of some of the primary tools that God gives you to be successful in spiritual warfare. And Jesus replied, it is written. Prophecy doesn't have to be complicated. It is simply agreeing with and repeating what God says to be a true about your life and circumstance. You know, sometimes we overcomplicate things. We make them more spiritual than they ought to be. We make them so complicated with all these formulas, and then pretty soon it's only really special people at really special times who have these really extraordinary gifts. That sounds more like the old covenant than it does the new. Scripture says that all may prophesy. So what does prophecy look like in our context? It means I have an ear to hear what God is saying, and then I'm allowing that word to come from my mouth. And what it looks like is God's perspective on life's events. If you have ears to hear, and if you have a mouth to speak, you can function in the gift of prophecy even in your own life. Watch verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, lowercase g. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. 
And when he saw that, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Let me say this. Breakthrough in your life is not without backlash from the enemy. But you can't allow the empty threats to cause you to run from the places that God has given you as an inheritance. Friend, the church of Jesus Christ belongs in the Northwest. And we're not running away because this land belongs to the people of God. It was his before it was ever anybody else's. And we can't overestimate the threats of the enemy and in doing so allow that to run from the places of inheritance in our life. No, you belong here. No, I belong here. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads, God is going to give you the land. You are a walking, living, breathing example of somebody who is utilizing their inheritance from God to be a force for good in the world around you. No, you belong here. And Elijah, coming off the greatest victory of his life, now operating in a spirit of fear, is running from the places that God has given him. It's interesting to me that in the New Testament, Jesus cast out demons, and the Pharisees say he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Yet the crowds see it and are amazed as they worship and glorify God. Two groups of people seeing the exact same thing, reaching two completely different conclusions. That tells me there's power in your perspective. Watch. We are all staring at the same culture. We are all staring at the same region. We are all staring at the same impossibilities, but it is what we say about what we see that determines the manner of spirit in which we operate. We're all dealing with the same information. We all have access to the same news channels, and y'all got eyes to see what, what's happening in the world around us. But it is what you confess after what you see that ultimately dictates the type of world that you'll create. Believers have this optimistic ability to get God's perspective on life's events. And in the middle of death, we prophesy life. In the middle of chaos, we prophesy peace. In the middle of setbacks, we prophesy blessing because we are people who operate in divine favor from God. It is what you say based off of what you see. Two groups of people see the same exact thing, and they have completely dissimilar responses. One says it's demonic, and the other person says, no, this is the Messiah. The power of your confession, based on your perspective, ultimately dictates what type of life you're going to live. Watch what Scripture says. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind, which means for every one negative from the enemy, God responds with three positives from his camp. For fear, he not only gives you power, he also gives you love. And then on top of that, make sure that you're thinking safe thoughts so he gives you a sound mind. Why? Because the enemy would come in one way, but he'd go fleeing about seven, eight, nine, ten different ways. No, God has given you tools in this hour to retain the manner of spirit in which you operate. Now, generally speaking, you attract what you fear because you ultimately build your life, your attention, and your mindset around those things. The healthy fear can serve as a warning. Unhealthy fear serves as an obsession. Healthy fear can help you live. Unhealthy fear makes you so afraid of dying you forget to live. Healthy fear can help safeguard your life. Unhealthy fear puts you into bondage while you suffer under the tyranny of what if. 
And friend, if you fear God, you won't have room to fear man. I, I love Elijah, you know, one of the primary figures of the Old Testament. In fact, so crucial that in order to fulfill prophecy, the Bible says one must come first in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus. And we know that being that was John the Baptist. I mean, he's so significant in Old Testament literature. But what I love is that the pages of Scripture not only record his highlights, but also his lowlights. And if you were writing your own story today, I imagine you'd skip over the two or three chapters that make you look like a coward and a fool, but not Scripture. And there's a reason why Scripture gives us insight into the dark seasons of people's lives. It's to prove to us this point. The same God who was faithful on the mountain is also faithful in the valley. You know, sometimes because we live in a social media generation, all we see is different snapshots of people's successes. And then we compare our lowlights to other people's highlights. And can I tell you, just about everything you see on social media is fake. It's the best version of what people want you to see. And that's why I love scripture. Because not only does it show us David, a man after God's own heart, but it also shows us David making a lot of mistakes that cost him dearly. And at the end of the day, God is faithful on both ends of the spectrum. Not only does Scripture show us Moses, the great deliverer, but also the one who is angry, striking the rock, doubting God. It shows us a Moses who walks through every season of life with a God who sticks closer than a brother. That's the God that we serve. So when you read Scripture, you ought to be really encouraged that if God can use people like this, he can use anyone. And we have Elijah, the great man of faith, who's just slayed the prophets of Baal. He called fire down from heaven. It is one of the most tremendous, outstanding, power, dynamic miracles we read in the Old Testament. Now running for his life because wicked and stupid teamed up to give him a death threat. We think to ourselves, well, I would never be like that. You know, if I just saw God do some really powerful things, I, I, man, I would never operate in fear. Now, I would never be, you know, once I get good, once I come to the altar, I'm just good for life. You know, scripture says you're supposed to be salt and light. By the time you get home from church, some of you are salty and lit. <laughs> Friend, we fail about four, five, six, seven times a day. You know, we read the story of Peter. I would have never denied Christ. No, guys, we're up and down all the time. The Bible says we are faithless and he is faithful. And so for us, we just, we just celebrate a God who is better than we deserve, who is in this for the long haul. Now verse 4, watch what scripture says. Now he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Great man of faith, Elijah, praying that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Sometimes I think God says that about us. I've had enough. But Elijah's complaining. I've had enough, right? Like Elijah's the one who's fed up. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestor. Let me stop there for a moment. What Elijah's saying here in this moment is my best days are behind me, not ahead of me. I'm no better than my ancestors. Friends, when we think about generational curses, bloodline curses, I think about them in this context. When you begin to believe that you're doomed to repeat the same mistakes of the people who came before you just because you so happen to share the same last name, that's not true. Elijah says, I'm just going to die just like my ancestors. 
I'm probably just going to get sick with the same disease mom and dad had. My marriage probably won't survive because divorce runs in my family. My kids probably won't survive because abuse runs in my family. Friend, it ran in your family, but then it ran into you. And the blood of Jesus still speaks a better word about every circumstance and every condition. And he bought you with a price. You're not your own. You belong to him. Sometimes we live under the false bondage of generational oppression. And can I tell you today, those curses are broken off of your life when your confession begins to change. I am not what has been done to me. I am not what has been done before me. I am what has been done on my behalf by a man named Jesus. My life belongs to him. That's when you begin to walk in freedom. I don't care if people have been addicted in your family the last 400 years. Friend, today is a new day. His mercies are new every morning. You're going to be the first to go to college. You're going to be the first to get sober. You're going to be the first to have a healthy family. You're going to be the first to stay married. You're going to be the first to raise healthy kids. You're going to be first to land that good job. You're going to be a first in your generation. Why? Because your blood, his blood runs in your veins. You, you just ought to believe. This is why it's so dangerous to self-identify and self-diagnose. Because you go talk yourself into all sorts of bondage that was never yours to carry. And you ought to understand whom the sun sets free is actually free. Not free in theory. Not free in philosophy, but actually free. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it dwells in you. And our God can do anything. Now watch. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him and said this, get up and eat. Four words, get up and eat. Wasn't a 17-minute prophetic word. Wasn't an encouragement from the book of Psalms. Get up and eat. Sometimes the most spiritual things in your life feel like the least spiritual things in your life. Never underestimate the value of a short nap and a good meal. <laughs> Elijah goes from, I want to die, take me home, I'm no better than my ancestors. The angel said, go to sleep, now get up and eat. Now watch, it gets better. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And he went into a cave and he spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> the drama of Elijah is almost too much to bear. Take my life, I'm better off dead. Listen, if God wanted to take your life, he wouldn't need your permission to do so. God didn't want Elijah dead. Elijah wanted Elijah dead. Because the net result of listening to the father of lies is stolen joy, destroyed hope, and a dead end. In a matter of 10 verses, Elijah goes from victory on Mount Carmel to hopelessness on Mount Horeb. And yet the only thing that has changed is a threat from Jezebel. This is why there is such a battle over the perspective of believers in this hour, because it's literally a matter of life and death. 
That's why Paul says in the book of Philippians, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. For whatever of you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I love how the Lord tells Elijah to go to the mountain, and then once he arrives at the mountain, God asks him what he's doing there. God is asking these as strategic questions to help reveal the character, nature, and disposition of Elijah. God's not confused about your location. You're confused about your location. God's not confused about your destination. You're confused about your destination. And sometimes God will just tap you on the shoulder and he'll say, what are you doing in the Northwest? he said, say, what are you doing at Pursuit? What are you doing in this job? What are you doing in this family? And you'll say, well, because you, you told me to be here. And what he's looking for in those moments is just a childlike faith that responds, well, because my dad told me to be here. That's why I'm here. Because, friend, that's enough. That's enough. Elijah, why are you in the cave? You told me to be in the cave. That's why I'm in the cave. God says, yeah, I got you right where I want you. Let me just remind you, you're here on divine assignment. Let me just remind you, you're here because you've gotten a word from God. You're here because God touched your heart. You're here because God motivated your spirit. You're here because God spoke to you in a dream or a vision or a word. No, you're here because you're a remnant in the earth in this region to bring the kingdom of heaven down below. That's why you're here. Well, why am I here, God? Oh, just allow God to remind you of your purpose this morning. Because every once in a while, he got to remind you. If you still got a heartbeat, you still got a purpose. You still got a reason. If you got breath in your lungs, he's not done. I know the enemy tried to kill you, but God raised you back up. You're here for a reason. You should be dead. You should be OD'd, overdosed, left on the side of the road. But for some reason, you're still here. And every once in a while, God will ask a question he already knows the answer to, just to remind you, you're here on purpose. Pursuit, why are you here? For revival and reformation. Good. Just wanted to make sure you knew that. Now watch. It gets better. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I love this. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Hear me. Sometimes we think our passion for God exempts us from trials in life. Watch what Elijah says. I've been very zealous for you, and look how they've treated me. If we were to be honest, we've had that attitude a time or two as it pertains to God. God, I've been very passionate for you, and look how life has treated me. Can I tell you passion for God, commitment to the house of God, being a part of a church family? Listen, it doesn't exempt you from trials. And it doesn't even reduce the likelihood that you'll walk through difficulty. But what it does do is when you walk through difficulty, it gives you the necessary spiritual and relational tools not to remain a victim. Well, I thought if I became a member, I'd never have difficulty again. No, you might actually have more. Well, I thought if I followed this Jesus and tithed and served and showed up, I just, I just thought it'd be smooth sailing from here. No, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Why? Because Christ has overcome. 
So being a part of a church family doesn't mean I don't ever have trial. What it means is when I face it, I got people around me who when I fall, help pick me back up. That's the benefit of your zealousness for the things of God, the people of God, and the house of God. But See, oftentimes we take trial and tribulation as a sign that God's upset at us. No, God's judging me because of this trial. No, you live in a fallen world, and so you experience fallen things. But in the midst of a fallen world, we serve a risen Savior. And so we know that in the midst of every difficulty, God makes a way. I love this. Elijah starts complaining to God like God doesn't already know the situation. He says, they torn down your altars, put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Listen, God has not asked you to manage the outcome. He's asked you to be faithful to obey. When you try to manage the outcomes, you almost always end up coming to a false conclusion. Elijah says, I'm the only one left. It's not true, but that's how Elijah feels. But oftentimes, in the midst of tyranny and turmoil, your emotions lie to you about what is actually true. And how many times does the enemy try to stamp a permanent conclusion on a temporary circumstance? You're sick, and the enemy says, you'll always be sick. You're down, so the enemy says, you'll always be down. You're defeated, so the enemy says you're going to stay defeated. But here's the reality. God still has the final say. Now, Elijah is telling God about conclusions. But Scripture says God is not just the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith, which means I leave the conclusions to him. It's not my job to manage the conclusions. It's my job to be faithful to obey. Oh, God, I haven't seen it, and I've been praying for it, and I've been faithful, and where are you at? And I just, I'm just worried it's not going to end the way that I thought it would end. No, leave the conclusions to God. Because you're not in management, you're in sales. So let God be God so you can be you. And in doing so, you just be faithful to obey. And just because you feel like the only one doesn't mean you are the only one. Now, the Lord said in verse 11, watch. He said, go out and stand by the mountain in the presence of the Lord. for The Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Hear me. Not everything you experience is of God, but everything you experience can help reveal God. It's interesting because in 1 Kings 18, which is just a chapter prior to this, God responds with fire, splits the altar, consumes the prophets of Baal, does all sorts of things, and God is in it. And the very next chapter, God does all of those same things, but the scripture says God is not in it, which means this, God is more creative than you. And how many of you know God will oftentimes do the same thing in a different way just to remind you you're not in control, he is. Well, God healed me this way last time, so he must heal me this way this time. No, God is more creative than you. God can speak in the earthquake, but he doesn't always speak in the earthquake. God can speak in the fire, but he don't always speak in the fire. God can speak in the wind, but he doesn't always speak in the wind. And sometimes it's a gentle whisper. And here's what I felt like the Lord said to me in this season. He said, Russell, I need you to be more clear than you are loud. See, we got a lot of loud voices in culture clamoring for your attention. But the voice of truth is clear.
It's clear. For us, as we consider our lives in light of the kingship of Lord Jesus, we're reminded out of the pages of 1 Kings 19 that God isn't always in the chaos and the commotion, although He can be. Oftentimes, He's in the still, small voice that comes after. For us, we tap into the desire to clearly communicate the urgency of the hour. And in doing so, call people to revival and awakening. Don't allow the clamoring of culture to cause you to miss out on the still small voice. It's there. Hear me, friend. The question is not, is God still speaking? The question is, are we still listening? I feel like God's not speaking anymore. No, he's speaking way more than we give him credit for. The question is not, is he speaking? It's our ears tuned in to hear what he's saying. Now, here's where I'll end. Verse 18. God responds to Elijah. He says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Friends, you're not alone. God has reserved a people in the Northwest, and even now he's gathering them under his banner, and we stand together as one. Elijah's telling the Lord, I'm all alone. They've destroyed everything. Jezebel hates me. Thanks a lot. Take me home. And God says, shut up, sit down, take a nap, eat a meal, stand up, go to the cave, hear my voice, repeat. And in doing so, God sends the message that Elijah needs to hear. You are not alone. I've got 7,000 prophets I hid in caves. I got 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. I've got 7,000 that haven't given in to culture. I've got 7,000 who haven't prostituted their worship. I've got 7,000 burning hearts in this region. And Elijah, you are one of many. Come on, can I prophesy over this house for just a moment this morning? Pursuit, we are not alone. I bet there's at least 7,000 in this region, maybe more, who haven't bowed their knee. I bet there's at least 7,000 with burning hearts. I bet there's at least 7,000 that God is sending this way. I bet there is an entire company of people who have just been waiting for the house of God to find courage and boldness for the season that we're in, and God is sending them in this hour. They've been hidden in caves. They've been standing on the margins. They've been sitting in the back. They've been watching at home. They've been gathering from the region. They've been moving in and moving out and switching jobs and trying to just figure out where God is in this season. But by his spirit and by his still small voice, he is bringing them home, bringing them into the fold, bringing them into the house of God. We are not alone. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee. Because in the midst of every counterfeit prophetic movement, God raises up men and women who hear his voice. Oh yeah, we got Baal in the Northwest, but our God is stronger. Our God is bigger. Our God is final. Our God is infinite. Our God is sovereign. Yeah, we got a lot of Baal worship in the world around. You don't need to tell me how bad the world is. I got the same eyes you do. But I know this, 
My confession of faith is not that the dark is dark, but that the light is more immeasurable than we've ever given it credit for, and the church of Jesus Christ will advance, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's who we are. That's who we are. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Come on, let me pray for you. Man, I want to stir you up today. You're here on purpose. You're not here on accident. You're not here just visiting. You're here on purpose. God's put something in your heart, friend. God's put something in your spirit in this hour. I'm giving you the invitation of the ages. Come co-labor in the harvest field, for the fields are ripe under harvest. It is not four months and then the harvest, the kingdom is all around. There's never been a better time. There's never been a better moment. Friend, be a part of the 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee. And let's take the region for Jesus. Come on, with every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me pray, Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask that you would do your best work first in us and then through us. We commit in this hour not to bow at any other altar outside the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, we say now by your spirit, instead of fear, power, love, and a sound mind, instead of timidity and cowardice, power, love, and a sound mind. God, I pray that you would strengthen us for the hour, that you would give us that bread of life, that you would give us that supernatural spiritual rest, that we would be prepared for the journey that is ahead, that we wouldn't be distracted by the earthquakes and the fires and the winds, but instead we would have ears trained to hear the still small voice that still speaks a better word about our condition and our environment. And we commit to stand against every Ahab, every Jezebel, every Baal, every demonic entity, for our God is stronger. Our God is better and now God we ask for your anointing to come upon our lives to do supernatural exploits that we would be strong and of good courage for God has given us the land we will not shrink back in our hour of testing we will not shrink back in our hour of trial we will be everything that God has asked us to be and nothing he says we're not And God, may you do a mighty work in this region to such a degree that every eye would see, that every heart would know, that every ear would hear that Jesus reigns on high. Father, we love you. God, we honor you. In Jesus' name. Come on, all God's people said amen. <laughs> amen. Hey, if you're here today and you want prayer before you leave, I'd sure love to add my faith to yours to see God do a miracle in your life. We got some altar workers up here on my right and on my left. We'd love to pray with you. If not, God bless. Thanks for joining us. We're going to see a lot of you next week. Hope you'll join us. Invite a friend, invite a family member. Love to see you in the house of God. God bless. We'll talk soon.